take your Bible, open it to the Gospel of John, to the Gospel of John. As you're turning there, we're embarking this morning on a new study. Don't forget that little flyer that was in your bulletin. So helpful on Good Friday. Are you ready for that? It's not this Friday, but the next one. All the information is right there, and all the information for Easter is right there. We're going to have a wonderful, wonderful weekend that week, and so please take a look. But we want to start this morning on the Gospel of John. We're embarking on what I pray would be a transforming study for us as a church. I'm so thrilled to be in it. I've been weeks into it at this point now and uh, so excited, but I thought it would be helpful if just for today I could introduce all of John's gospel for you, and I'm going to go fast and I'm going to be touching on a number of things. It's probably not going to be the sequence that we have every week. We'll start that next week where we're looking word by word, line by line, but at least this week if I could just paint the the whole picture for you of John's gospel in the best way that I can. We'll partake of communion just here in a little bit. But obviously, we've got some of the greatest known text in all of the Word of God from this gospel. You just think what comes to us over the years, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We will exposit from that and that whole play there with Nicodemus. And then we've got John 6.35, that I am the bread of life, that he who comes to me will never be, what, hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It's only in the person of Christ that he satisfies that true hunger and that true thirst. Jesus in another text said in John 10:11 that I am the good shepherd. In John 11:36 I Jesus said am the resurrection and the life. John 15:1 I am the true vine, so forth. And then you've got that wonderful section in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust also in me or believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am And then, of course, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And you have these and many other classic statements that we love that are all found in this wonderful, wonderful gospel. I think what I'd like to do today is just to take you through a panoramic view and ask and answer five questions, if you will, to set the table. And I really feel like you have to understand, I'm trying and attempting to set the table for what could take us a couple years right? I mean, this is not going to be just a quick hit here. We're going to go through the gospel of John. This is going to mature our church. In fact, I, I thought as I prayed, it might even be a timing for us as we finish John to move into the new building at some point here and then launch into the epistles. But I'd like to just ask and answer five questions to set the table for us. But the first question there on the notes is, why are there four gospels? And again, some of this just to reflect on, but why do we have four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. Well, there's four complementary accounts that really provide a composite picture 
of the person and work of Christ working to give us really an understanding of who he is and to give us a depth and clarity to the, to the most unique figure ever in human history. And so they all work together, but they each show us something different. Matthew, as the church here went through in the early years, presents Jesus as the Christ. It presents Jesus as the Christ, Israel's messianic king. And that's why in Matthew you have his genealogy. That's why predominantly you have the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You have in Matthew's gospel his authority and his power. All of those are emphasis, if you will, of his messianic credentials. But he presents Jesus as the Christ. Mark, which I've taught through, which I love Mark, presents Jesus as the servants. The servant. That's why Mark wrote. He has other things in there, but his emphasis is on him as the servant, who, according to Mark 10.45, came to give his life a ransom for how many? Many, it says. That's why he wrote. In fact, what's interesting about Mark's gospel, when you look at all of it, 37% of Mark's gospel is devoted to the events of his last and most important week. So some people would say of Mark's gospel, you've got some miracle accounts in there, but then the whole second half, if you will, is all regarding the last events of his life or that last week. And then in Luke's gospel, his emphasis is this. He presents Jesus as the perfect son of man, as the perfect son of man. And Luke continually emphasizes his humanity whose mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. And you have this composite picture given. John, on the other hand, as we go, which is why I gave you that brief background, presents Jesus as God in the flesh. It prevents not his humanity, Luke does that, not his servitude, Mark did that, not his messianic credentials, Matthew did that. John presents Jesus as God in the flesh. It presents his deity. He is the eternal son of God who came to earth, was born to die as God's human sacrifice for sin. So John is just an amazing gospel. On the one hand, I would tell you it's the simplest, if that's a way to say it, the simplest in terms of its language. In fact, often when you're even in Greek class as a student, they would often take you to John because his language isn't so verbose. So in one sense, it's simplest, and yet it's the most profound of all the Gospels. And for many people, it is the greatest and the most powerful And John writes his gospel for a very specific purpose of bringing people to spiritual life through belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in the gospels, Jesus is revealed, Grace Church, is both divine and human. He is the sovereign servant. He is the God-man. Each gospel has a distinctive dimension to add so that the total is greater than the sum of of all of just the parts. Now, just a little framework for you, and you know, I don't know if this is helpful. I, I, I think it might be. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what, a, are what is known as 
as the synoptic gospels. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. We just say sometimes the four gospels, okay? But if you look at it, we, we call those synoptic gospels. And synoptic, it's just a word that we've given to them. The, the Greek word simply means to see together, to see together. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each author and each gospel has its uniqueness and reflects the author's theme as such. However, in those synoptic gospels, there is a general theme, there is a general viewpoint, there is a structure, there is uh, general language given to each book, but I want you to know that John is really, really unique. So we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke synoptics to see them all together. But secondly, let's ask and answer that question. What makes John's gospel so unique? And, and the answer to that is both what he omits and what he adds. And what he omits and what he adds is frankly intriguing. You say, well, what, what kind of stuff? Why is it so unique? Well, he omits our Lord's birth, okay? You're going to get that in Matthew. You're going to get that in genealogy. But in John, he's God, okay? So John just gets right to the point. He omits our Lord's birth. He omits our Lord's baptism. In John, you will not find the temptation account, which you find in the others, In John, you will not see his agony in Gethsemane at that one point, but then you get so much more in his upper room discourse. You do not find in John's gospel his ascension into glory. Very interesting. He omits, does John, if you you understand this, all the parables, almost. Doesn't even refer to them, okay? So if you think you got it, this is why we're going through it. He, He omits the transfiguration which is so huge in Matthew's gospel. Uniquely, he omits the Lord's Supper. He omits the kingdom of God. He omits, if you remember, in both Mark 13 and Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which was the doctrine of last things. It's interesting that John says nothing about casting out of demons. He doesn't mention the Sadducees in the gospel of John. In John, he omits, can you believe this? The Sermon on the Mount. And and there's some reason for that, because here, he's not so much referring to the kingdom as he's referring to the king himself. And because he's God, he has no genealogy. I mean, this is, I think we just sang this morning that God has never, he's always been. And the truth is, he always has been Christ always is and always will be, and John will show him as God in the flesh despite being rejected. So that's what he admits. However, John includes substantial material not found in the other Gospels. I I think I told you this, which is kind of exciting. 90% of John's Gospel is unique to the Synoptic Gospels. You understand that? So you think, I've been through this with in Matthew. Well, I'd be like, no, no, you really haven't. In fact, the actual percent is 90% found in the gospel of John is unique to the synoptic gospels. You say like what? And I'm just going to move quick here and I'll come back to this. Chapter two and three, his whole ministry in Judea and Samaria is not listed or recited anywhere else. 
His early ministry in Jerusalem is only found in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, when he turns the water into wine, only seen here. The private interview in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, only here. The Samaritan woman in John 4, only here. The healing of the lame man in chapter 5, only here. Remember in chapter 9, the miraculous healing of the blind man who sinned, this man or his parents. Well, neither. That's only here in John 9. The whole discourse in chapter 6 on the bread of life is only found here. The statement in John 7 that he is the living water is only in the gospel of John. In chapter 8, where Jesus takes on the name of God, only here. The reference in chapter 10 to the good shepherd, only here. Chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus, only here. Chapter 13, what a precious passage, the washing of the disciples' feet. It's only found in John's gospel. In 13 to 16, that upper room discourse with his disciples is only found here. In fact, it's really so precious that when you get to that upper room discourse, somewhere between 13 and 16 or even 13 and 17, if you wanted to include the high priestly prayer, there are four chapters on just a couple hours. So what John does is he peels back, if you will, the curtain and sends you, if you will, into the Holy of Holies. Beloved, listen, we're on holy ground here. We're on holy ground, what we're looking at. And I want you to know I'm just pumped up because I've never done John. I've never done it. So every week you pray for me as I pray for you. And then in chapter 21, you got the miraculous catch of fish. And then in chapter 1, you've got 21, you have the recommissioning of Peter, not found anywhere else. And then think about it this way, Grace Church of the Valley. You have more on the Holy Spirit in John's gospel by far than any other gospel. More on the Holy Spirit, which pumps me up. And then you've got the entire discussion in this gospel with Pilate. And then John, if I could make sure I say this, he includes the clearest explanation of the Trinity in all of the Gospels. So if you're out there and you want to think, ah, how does that triune relationship with God work? 130 times there is reference to our Heavenly Father in this book. And so by telling, beloved, the other side of the story, John presents a fuller understanding of our Lord. Now listen, these differences between this and the synoptics are not a reason for concern, nor, on the other hand, should they be exaggerated. Listen, all the Gospels demonstrate and show that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, All the Gospels show and demonstrate that he's Israel's Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. All of them show that. All of the Gospels present Jesus as Lord and Savior of the world. All of them. I have scriptures for all of these. All of them show him dying a sacrificial death on the cross and rising from the dead. And so listen, let me just say it this way. The synoptics and John support and bolster each other. They explain one another. They complement one another. And so we're going to dig in and look at John's gospel. Now, thirdly there, just if you're taking notes, who is the author of John's gospel? 
You say, well, John, pastor, well, I, I think it probably is fair to say it's that easy. But listen, John, like the other gospels, does not specifically identify himself as the author. You said he doesn't? No, he, he doesn't. In fact, if you go to the beginning of your Bible, if, I think you might be there. I, I have a little title at the top, and, and I'm reading the gospel. Do you see that before 1-1? One, one, according to John. Now, you can see that. They've added that, and I'll tell you why they've added that. It's in a few later manuscripts. It's not in the early manuscripts. We believe it was added later. Nevertheless, listen, no manuscript has ever been found that attributes John's gospel to anyone other than him, John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. And so when you think, who's the author? You're always bound up doing a couple things. You're looking for external evidence, and you're looking for internal evidence. And according to the testimony of the early church, Irenaeus, who was somewhere around A.D. 130 to 200, we're thinking John's gospel was written somewhere between 80 and 90, right? After death, Jesus, if he went to the cross in 33 or 34, you're talking about 50 years after his death. John was now an older man. And then Irenaeus, writing in 130 to 200, was the first person to explicitly name John as the author. In fact, in his work Against Heresies, written in the last quarter of the second century, Irenaeus testified, quote, he said afterwards, meaning after the synoptic gospels were written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia, end of quote. And so you begin to read this, and I probably read hundreds of pages on this, and you don't have to do that, but this is the testimony of the early church. What's interesting about Irenaeus and what makes his witness especially valuable is that Irenaeus was a disciple of a man by the name of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of John. And so when we look at church history externally, we can see the direct line from Irenaeus to John with only one intervening link. Then you have another man by the name of Theophilus of Antioch who lived about the same time as Irenaeus, and he wrote this, quote, the holy writings teach us and all spirit-bearing men of whom John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so he said that John wrote that. And so it is commonly understood without any question that when you look at the teaching of the early church, they all attributed this book to John. And then there's this group, this other book called the Muratorian Canon. And what the Muratorian Canon was, was a second century list of books, okay? and Tertullian, and Clement of Alexander, and Origen, and Dionysius of Alexandria, and Eusebius all cite John as the author, okay? 
And so John's the author. And in fact, to be really honest with you, this was never questioned until the 19th century in the age of enlightenment for people to discredit the word of God. In fact, we believe that not only is the author, it was so obvious in the early church that he didn't even really have to identify himself as such. But I don't even think it's just that. I think he was so stunned by the love of God and the love of Christ for him that he never wanted to refer to himself, okay? So John's the author, and you might ask, well, who is John the apostle, okay? Well, you would know him, and I would know him, as the unnamed disciple known as one of the disciples whom Jesus, what? Loved. In fact, let me just show you. Go to John 13. That's why when you say, who is the author? Well, again, it's not directly identified, but John chapter 13, and where it says there in John 13 and verse 23, you have these statements. One of the disciples, this is the night in which he washed their, the, the disciples' feet, but 1323, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. We believe that's John. He refers to himself as, you know, as the one who Jesus loved. And that's not to credit himself. He, I just think he never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. That despite of all who he was, and despite of some of the things early in his life, Jesus loved him. He, he just says... I'm this disciple without identifying himself as such. Look over at John chapter 19. Just getting familiar with this book. John chapter 19. You remember this, at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1926, when Jesus, he's on the cross, saw his mother, obviously Mary, and the disciple, here he is again, whom he, what, loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your, what, mother. And from that hour, the disciple, which we believe is John, took her to his own home. This is John the Apostle. In fact, if you will, take, look, turn right, go over to John chapter 21, okay, after the resurrection now, you, you have this statement in 21.7, that disciple whom Jesus, what, loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so here is the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you will, look over at verse 20. Peter turned, and I'm in 21.20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. You have these just statements. Remember when Peter said to him in 21, 21, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He, Jesus said, you, you, you follow me. And then this wonderful statement, verse 24, 21, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is what true and so it's the disciple 
whom Jesus loved, which we all believe is the Apostle John. And I suppose in one sense, we would understand this. The Word of God is inspired. I mean, you're holding in your hands the inspired Word of God. They have authors, yes, but it's breathed out by God. It's the same way Hebrews, we don't know who the author is, but we know that that book in the early church was affirmed to be authoritative. Obviously, this book here by the, both the external testimony and the internal testimony is the Apostle John. Now, just to remind you about a few things with John, because I think it helped me understand who he is. Remember that when we talk about the Apostle John, he was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle, okay? Three years he was with Christ. Three years he saw Christ. For three years he saw his righteous life, and then he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Now remember as we study this book, this isn't the only book he wrote. We've already, we've already exposited another book that he wrote, and that was the book of First what? John. And then he wrote all three of those epistles. And remember as we come to this book, when John opened his first epistle to John, he said, that which was from the beginning, he said, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was manifest. And John says, we have seen it. And we testify to you and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us that what we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you. I just love that. You have to understand as we read this book, which is another reason why it's the Apostle John. It has to be. Because whoever wrote this book was there in box seats for the life of Christ. The topography, the geography that he goes through reveals somebody who was intimately acquainted, who was Jewish, who was Palestinian. It's the apostle John. And John says to you this morning by the Spirit of God, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I've lived with him, I saw the resurrection, and so forth. Now, who else is he a little bit further? Well, he's the younger son of two sons, at least, of Zebedee. So his father, according to Mark 3.17, is Zebedee. And John had another brother whose name was what? James, and whenever, who was an apostle. And whenever you see James, James is listed first. We believe that James was the older brother of John. Now, from the other gospels, John had a mother and her name was Zalame, okay? Zalame, Mark fifteen forty. She contributed to the needs of our Lord's ministry in Matthew twenty seven fifty five. And there's some people who believe, okay, that Zalame may have been, can't say for sure, but close, may have been the sister to Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, John 19.25. If that were to be true, that would make here John and Jesus, what? Cousins. Could very well have been. Now, we know from the other Gospels in Mark 1.20 that John was a successful fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. 
I think we say successful because at least when you look at Mark 1.20, these brothers owned a boat, number one, which I, I suppose would mean something, that they weren't working for somebody else. And secondly, in Mark 1.20, these brothers, John and James, had hired servants. The other thing that's interesting with John the Apostle is that, did you know that John the Apostle was first a disciple of who? John the Baptist. And I don't want to take time to go into there. We'll let the exposition do that in John chapter 1. It's why sometimes I just, when people tell me these are ordinary guys, I don't think they're ordinary at all. But you've heard that all your life. They're ordinary guys. No, they're not ordinary guys. John the Apostle was a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's entire function and role was to prepare the way for who? The Messiah. So whatever John the Baptist was pointing to, his disciples were looking to. And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sins of the world. John was there. Now, I can understand if people say ordinary guys, and they mean by that, ordinary backgrounds, but these are no ordinary dudes. These guys were looking for the Messiah. They were anxious for the Messiah, and they linked up with John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist pointed them the way to Jesus Christ. We'll go through that as we get in John 1. Now, don't forget that when we talk about John the Apostle, I mentioned him as the Apostle, but he's not just one of the Apostles. He's part of the inner, what, three This is an inner circle apostle that's writing this. Remember how he had 12, but then he had three? Remember that time when he went up to the mountain and he was transfigured before him? He's there. He's there. He saw Christ in his pre-incarnate glory and saw the conversation between Moses and Elijah at some point when Peter opens his mouth and said, let's build booths here. John was there. Understand, listen, this is not some guy who picks up a pen who has no background with Christ. This guy was connected to the Baptist. And then from the very early on, he was there in John 1 when Jesus said, come and you will see. And he came therefore and saw this guy was fired up. This guy had a passion in his heart because if John the Baptist was looking for the Messiah, so was this guy. But he was part of the inner three. He was part of the inner three um, in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus sent everybody out and Jairus' daughter had what? Died. He goes in the room. Imagine being in the room with Jairus and his daughter and she's dead and he raises her up. John the apostle witnessed that. So listen, when he says, I've seen, I've touched, I've held, I proclaim to you, he knows what he's talking about. And then when you get to the garden of Gethsemane, John's there in the inner three watching Christ in Matthew chapter 14. Now, what's interesting about this guy is he was given the name, have you ever heard this? By people in the early church, As John, or have you ever heard him refer to this? He's the apostle of love. You heard that? Now, maybe that's okay. He talks about love all the time. And he wrote more about love than any other New Testament writer. He wrote about our love for Christ. He wrote about Christ's love for his church. He wrote about our love for one another in John 13. But this he learned from Christ himself. So it's funny that his name is... The, the, uh, the apostle of love. And yet what's funny though is that's towards the end of his life. 
He was also called in Mark 3, verse 17, with his brother James, one of the sons of what? Thunder. It's amazing. Because do you remember in Luke chapter 9, when a stubborn and obstinate Samaritan town refused to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their midst, John and his brother James wanted to command fire to come down from what? Heaven and consume them. So it's amazing that at the end of his life, he gets the title, the apostle of love. But I'm telling you, this guy had passion in him. And in his early days, it was an unbridled passion. And basically, when they didn't trust Jesus in Luke 9, 54, him, him and his brother just said, that's it. Let's just, let's nuke them on the spot, Jesus. Let's just call it down right now. Lord, if they don't just take you, if they don't trust you, then I'm going to just call this fire down from heaven. That was John, who's also the apostle of love. In fact, it's also interesting in Luke chapter 9, the disciples, the apostles, saw someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And you know what John says? He said, we tried to prevent him because we don't know who they are and we don't, they're not following us. He, he almost was so group bound that he couldn't see the big picture. This is why MacArthur said this in his book, 12 Ordinary Men. He says, if you imagine John was the way he was often portrayed, I thought this was funny, in medieval art as a meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate person lying around on Jesus' shoulder, looking up at him with a dove-eyed stared. He said, forget that caricature, right? He was... And MacArthur said, a rugged, hard-edged, he said, just like the rest of the fishermen disciples. He was every bit as intolerant, ambitious, zealous, and explosive as his elder brother. In fact, the one and only time the synoptic gospel writers recorded John speaking for himself, he displayed his trademark aggressive, self-assertive, impertinent intolerance. And so he goes on to say it was clear from the gospel accounts that John was capable of behaving in the most sectarian, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashion. And here he said he was volatile, brash, and aggressive. He was passionate and personally ambitious, just like his brother James. And it's just interesting, isn't it? God did something in this guy's life, and we're going to take that journey together as we begin this gospel. God and Christ changed this man from really an arrogant young man to the apostle of love. Do you remember when I told you in 1 John? It was said, remember, he's the only guy that, he outsurvived all the apostles, which is interesting. Outsurvived them all. Remember, he went to the island of Patmos where he wrote this book called what? That's this guy. That's this guy. And they would say that at the end of his life, when he had no energy, they would just bring him out on a stretcher and he'd be laid over. That's what church history would say. And he would rise up and he would just tell the flock to love one another. And then he'd go back down and they'd carry him out, you know. But, but what's fascinating is God changed this guy. Because don't forget, this is the apostle in Mark 10, 35, who was in a debate with the disciples over who was the what? The greatest, that's John. And and this was the guy who said, we want to sit on your right and your what? 
left. That's this John. Arrogant, presumptuous, I mean, brash, volatile, and yet the Lord transformed him. So when he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's not crediting himself. He's just so blown away that Jesus kept loving him. Do you understand? The guy who wanted to call fire down out of heaven. The guy, when Jesus is talking about going to the cross, who wants to be the greatest. And when you add the other gospel account in there, it wasn't just John and James who were asking that. According to Matthew 20 and 21, who really was it? It was their mother. And maybe she was the sister of Mary, and she wants to get into the kingdom, and she wants her two sons on the right and left hand of Jesus Christ. But listen, he grew, praise God, and changes and changes were made, and his character was forged through the discipleship of Christ, and the young disciple at the end of his life became a fragrance of Christ's love. It's a wonderful, wonderful man. Now listen, a couple other things just to set the table for us. This is the only one out of the 12 who witnessed the crucifixion. There's just something tender about that to me. Say, where were the other ones? Well, Judas was no longer on the scene, right? And then where were the other 10 at that point? They scattered, not him. He's there. That's why on the cross when Jesus said, woman, behold your son. Son, take care of her in essence. He was there at the cross, okay? Who was the first one to the tomb that morning? John. Remember him and Peter sprinting? And John got to the tomb first, didn't he? I don't know. I don't know if it says anything in particular. But he stood on the outside, but he got there first, and Peter came and he went, what? Right inside the tomb. But John got there. He was there at the tomb. That's the guy writing this book. What we've seen, what we've touched, what we've held. And then after the crucifixion, he took Jesus' mother into his own home, John chapter 19. And then after the resurrection and ascension, John, and we don't have time, was one of the leaders of the, new, of the new church, the Jerusalem church, and you can track this in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 8. And in Galatians 2, he's called by the apostle Paul as a pillar of the what? Of the church. This guy is an important, important figure. That was Galatians 2, 9. We know that at the end of his life, he was banished to the island of Patmos, It was there that he received the vision and wrote the book of Revelation. (laughs) I I mean, just imagine I was there standing on the Lord's day and I turned and looked and behold, he saw the resurrected Christ. That's John. Listen, don't miss a week, okay? Don't even go on vacation, okay? I may be gone, but I don't want you to go because we get to study this guy. Listen, this is not just a, a book. This is the word of God. And he was there on the island of Patmos. And again, according to tradition, John spent his last years of his life at Ephesus overseeing the churches in the surrounding region and writing three epistles, first, second, and third John. Listen, beloved, aside from Luke, because Luke wrote a longer gospel, but aside from Luke and Paul the apostle, John wrote more of the New Testament than any other author of the New Testament. That's John. Here, fourthly, what was the outline? What are the outline and what is the key subjects? Well, the outline is there. I won't take long on it. It's just, you see it, it's the pronouncement of the Son of God. It's kind of funny, all the other synoptic gospels take a little time to reveal Christ. 
John just right out of the gate, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what? Was God. Just pronouncement, boom, right to the point on his identity. Then we'll look at the presentation, secondly, of the Son of God, 119 through 454, great section where he's presenting himself Thirdly, there's the protestation against the Son. You can see the chapters on there that even though he's God in the flesh, he's always being attacked. He's always being cornered. He's always being questioned. And then fourthly, the passion of the Son of God in 13 through 17. We get an inside window into his life. Then the prosecution, crucifixion, resurrection of the Son of God in 18 through 21. And then finally, the postscript. But you have all these unique chapters in John's gospel. Uh, One thing that Calvin said, he argued that since all the gospels had the same object to show Christ, Calvin, the great man of God, said the first three exhibit his body. And Calvin said, quote, if I may be permitted to put it like this, he said, John shows us his soul. We just get a, you get a peel back and see that prayer in 13 through 17, which is just incredible. Well, fifthly, we're all done. We have communion. What's the purpose of John? So what is the purpose of John? You know, it's, it's, in the other gospels, you kind of got to weed through, you know, put, put the picture together. Not on this one, because the purpose is stated crystal clear. Look over at John 20. You know this. Here's the purpose. This is so clear. Directly and distinctively, it's stated in chapter 20, verse 30. But Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his, what, name. There it is. John the Apostle writes First John to give us, the other book, the assurance of our salvation. But I really believe he writes this book, stated right there, for the purpose of evangelism. Evangelism, that we would believe. Now, I believe that Stating that, it has two outlets there. I think it's both apologetic and I think it's evangelistic. Apologetic, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, that you may continue to believe Jesus is the Christ. And so I think he's going to build our faith as we walk through this. But secondly, I think it's evangelistic that believing you may have life in his name. And so his purpose is crystal clear, to set forth, his deity, in order to spark believing faith in those who read. That's why he wrote. This book needs to be preached, needs to be taught, it needs to be lived. And I don't have the time. How he arranges the deity of Christ is he selects seven miracles to present a concise case for his deity. And we're going to go through those seven signs. He changes water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son. Secondly, he heals the paralytic. 
Number four, he feeds the 5,000. Number five, he walks on water. He gives sight, number six, to the blind man. And number seven, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And all those signs demonstrate and show that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Christ, the Son of the living God. And then if that's not enough, he goes on to make these seven I am statements. And we've touched on those. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Listen, John is the greatest gospel track ever written on Christ's life, death, resurrection. And he writes so that you would believe. So listen, I just want to tell you, I want you here, okay? I want your kids here. You can make distinctions who goes and how old they would need to be. But if you think your child can hear this, I'm praying that we look back and say, oh, my son got saved in John 4. My, my daughter got saved in John 6. My granddaughter got saved in John 8. Uh, you know, my grandson got saved here. My wife got saved here. Listen, every week it's going to be the gospel and the person of Christ written for this purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And as you do, you will know eternal life. So listen, Grace Church, let's do this. Can we do that? Let's roll up our sleeves. We'll get going next week and we'll go on. Look at the final postscript and we'll go into communion. Look at the last verses. I love this statement in 21, 24, and 5. Last statement. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so we have this picture to lead us into Christ-likeness. Amen.